privilege to be back here again. And um, uh, this morning, I want to uh, to speak on uh, the, the, the a test of assurance, and I'll, I'll title this "Test of Assurance Part One." So, if I ever come back, we'll just pick up where I left off, and if you remember that, and we'll just continue on. Um, so, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get started. Father, I come to you this morning in the name of your Son Jesus, the name above all names. Lord, I need help perhaps the most this morning handling your word. I ask for you to move me out of the way and let your word speak to your people this morning. Pray for willing hearts and willing minds to receive your word. Pray for conviction to fall on your people where it needs to fall and encouragement to build up where it needs to build up. Father, I trust that discernment to your perfect mind, to your perfect will, to your perfect sovereignty, to your, to your uh, people. Lord, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 2 Corinthians 13.5, well, that's not going to be our text this morning, but um, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, Paul says. Test yourselves. Uh, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The idea of assurance, assurance of your salvation, is not something that everybody uh, believes. Some pastors will even teach that, that you can't know or can't have that assurance. Um, and, and, and I find it peculiar that the Apostle Paul tells us to examine ourselves. He tells us to test ourselves. And so why would the Apostle Paul tell us to do something that some teach that, that we cannot know? Uh, we, we see this in some churches. We see that, the, that some promote God as some mystery being. Some, some that we cannot know. We, we find this in the Roman Catholic Church is taught that you cannot have assurance of your faith. You cannot know if you are truly saved. And so the best way to read the Bible, to read Scripture, to understand Scripture, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Bible is what we call synergistic. It means it works together. And when we find Scripture and we find parts that we may not understand or fully grasp, the best way to do that is to take that as a warning and go back to Scripture and continue to labor in Scripture and mine those truths out until we can reconcile those things together. God is not a God of confusion. and God is not a God of chaos. I, I, I had posted it one time uh, in social media, and, I, and I'm still haven't learned my lesson, I guess, that social media is perhaps not the best place to have certain conversations because you lose the tone. People just see text. But, but I had posted that uh, Scripture, each verse in Scripture, Scripture in context has one meaning and one meaning only. It doesn't have a different meaning for everybody. God is not a God of confusion. So if, if, if Scripture, if, you, if a person does not believe that, because we've all been to the Bible studies, well, this is what this verse means to me. Well, this is what this verse means to me. If that's the case in Scripture, if you don't agree with that, that Scripture means the one thing that it means, then either God is a schizophrenic or you're wrong. Those are the only two options. 
And so we, we, we find this doctrine of assurance here in Scripture. And God is a communication. Now, I, I need to give some clarity from the beginning that we have got two doctrines that have kind of gotten mushed together. You know, when it rains and you see, a, you see a creek that's usually nice and clear. And you can see the rocks here and the water here and the trees here. And you see the nice structure, right? Well, when it rains, it gets kind of muddied up. And over time in the church today, we have gotten the doctrine of assurance and the doctrine of security, and they've been kind of mushed together and muddied up. So just quickly, I want to just d- explain the difference between these two, and then we're going we're gonna to launch into this. The security, when we talk about security, what we are talking about is the power that God has used to save you, to change your heart, is the same power that secures your salvation. Now, the, the circles that, 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 that I run in and, and my friend Adam run in, we, we call it perseverance of the saints, you may have heard, okay? Now, typically, um, you hear in the church slang in America today, you'll hear once saved, always saved. Now, the theology behind that is true. Sadly, the phrase once saved, always saved doesn't do it justice, and it gets slung around, and it muddies it up, uh, the doctrine of security. And, and the reason why uh, the phrases like once saved, always saved, and perseverance of the saints leave a bad taste in our mouths is because of, of, of poor evangelism. Okay, But it comes down to the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Now remember, we're talking about security here. Uh, I like one of my favorite pastors, John MacArthur, says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So let let me me explain here. I don't think that's the right question to ask. I don't think the question, when we think about security, the right question to ask, can a Christian lose his salvation? I think it's the wrong question. I think the better question and the right way to ask it is, can Christ lose a Christian? Now, when we think about it in that way, we have something to work with. Because I I don't think he can. I, I think what he did on the cross was perfect. I think what he did on the cross was sufficient. And, and, I, and, I, and I think what he did on the cross was more than enough to, to, to satisfy God's wrath. And when you're genuinely regenerated, when you're born again, when you're genuinely a Christian, okay, Christ perfectly paid for your sin. Christ perfectly took your place. He perfectly secured your salvation. And a perfect Savior who perfectly secures your salvation perfectly before a perfect God, can't give you something imperfect. Because when we go down that road, we, 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 we take away the power of the cross. We take away the power of salvation. Can Christ save you or not? And when we look at Scripture, and we could sit here all afternoon and we could just go through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, confirming, confirming our, our security... But just as a quick flyby, because this is, uh, but because I, I need to explain these two, the security and the assurance. When you think of of, of, of security, you think of it this way: when, when I say a Christian, I say somebody that has been regenerated, or we, in today's terms, we say born again. That you're born of the Spirit. You're born again. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six says your heart of stone has been removed, and you've gotten a new heart. What's the Bible say about salvation? Salvation is what? Jonah 2.9, of the Lord. What happened in Acts 16 and verse 14 when it says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart. 
God is the author of salvation. God is the one that does the saving. God is the one that gives you a new heart. And for you to believe that you can lose your salvation if you're truly saved, then logically, if I follow your line of thought in that argument, that means it's possible for God to give you an imperfect heart. And if God can give you an imperfect heart, then that means he's not perfect. Do you see? The argument just falls apart. I want to encourage you, if you are born again and God has transformed your heart and you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, you're secure. You're secure. God is a God of clarity. He's spoken clearly. God is a God of certainty. And God will not fail. And that is the doctrine of security, that you're secure. Now, the doctrine of assurance is, is, is that how do you know that you know? Many times, as, as, as we're on the streets, we, we hear these conversations, especially in the one-on-ones, and, and we start talking to a person, maybe pray with them, and, and we'll ask if he or she is a Christian. Overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. 85% of this country, the last survey I said, in America, 85% of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. If you believe that, I've got some oceanfront property right out the road here, and I'm going to sell you. If 85% of Christians in America were born again, we wouldn't have this issue with, 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 with gay mirage going on. And I call it mirage because it's a fallacy. We wouldn't have this problem with abortion and churches that, that are teaming up with pro-abortion groups. God's people teaming up to slaughter babies? 85% of this country is not born again, but they believe they are. And so we want to kind of, the loving thing to do as a Christian is to, to dig into that, to, to pierce into that and to see, are, are, is this person truly born again? Not playing Holy Ghost Junior, but as a care for somebody that you want to see them on the other side of glory uh, when they take their last breath. And so when you ask that question, are you a Christian? Well, yes. And so the immediate follow-up question is, well, why? And again, the majority of the answers would be, well, because I believe in Jesus. And one way you can kind of continue to explore is a lot of times I'll answer with a question like, with a remark like this. Well, the devil believes in Jesus. It's not doing him any good, is it? He was there at the beginning. Did you remember? He was there at the beginning before he was tossed out of heaven. Even the devil believes. And then you can go to James 2.19. It says, even the demons believe. James 2.19 says, and they shudder. They shudder. So, so, what do you do with that? How do you know that you know? This is the doctrine of assurance. How do you know that you know? If you were to go through a phone book or, or call some local pastor or anybody in a church leader in many churches around today and ask them how you could know you're, you're, you're saved. How do I know, pastor? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I have this assurance how can I walk knowing that, that, that God has me? Friends, the majority of church leaders around will tell you, well, was there ever time you prayed and asked Jesus into your heart and on and on these typical methods? And if you say yes, they'll say, well, just, just go back to there and tell the devil to leave you alone and you just keep pressing on. And that's as much assurance as they can give you. Um, and it's all over the place. There's a lo- local a local channel in Clarksburg near where I live and there's a, there's a pastor who will preach and whatever he preaches and most of the time it's prosperity gospel it's how you can have your you know do good things and Jesus is kind of a genie lamp and at the end of every broadcast every broadcast he'll say 
Now, friend, we're, thank you for watching our broadcast and yada, yada, yada. Would you like to receive Jesus into your heart? Would you like to come to Jesus today? Then, then repeat this prayer after me, Jesus, Jesus. And he'll just sit there and kind of rattle off something. And then he said, friend, if you said that prayer, then we believe you're saved today. Welcome to the kingdom. Give us a phone call, send us a postcard. Let us know you made that decision. And that person, that's their assurance. And, and if I ever see this pastor out in love, I'm going to offer to buy him lunch and go sit down with him and ask him for book, chapter, and verse of where he learned to bring somebody to Christ like that. Because it's not there. It's, 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 but it, it, and I'm saying that to get to the point of assurance. We, we give this, you know, what happens to the house that's built on sand? Scripture tells us. What happens? It falls apart. But what happens to, to something built on the rock? When someone is brought to Christ with the gospel truths, with law and with grace, and God truly changes their heart, we're going to see how we can have that assurance. That assurance, that not this false emotional manipulation that's done at many tent revivals and everything else we see going on out there in the church world today. I've told this story before, not here, but um, a church I was at several years ago had had an outreach event. And it was the typical, prototypical American evangelical thing of bait and switch. The, the, this church was affiliated with a biker ministry, and their bait was a brand spanking new $20,000 Harley Davidson. Brand new. They were given away. They had a whole weekend of their little bike weekend, and they go, and here's the catch. Anybody could get a ticket. It was free. Everything was free, free, free. Here's the catch. They weren't going to do the drawing until after the service on Sunday. And here's the second catch. You had to be present to win. So what are they doing? They're luring people in with the things of this world that they're going to you know, eventually realize that they're idols when they get, if they do get saved. And then they're going to throw Jesus at him and see if he sticks. Like an Italian cook throwing pasta on the wall to see if it's done. That's what they were going to do. But here's the tragedy of it all. Forget that evangelism technique. Here's the tragedy. So hundreds of people fill up this local high school football field. Now picture this. The, the service is being broadcast from the field. They've got a makeshift stage. They've got a band, the 7-Eleven worship, same seven songs, same seven words, 11 times over and over and over and over. And, and the message was just a bunch of one-liners and one-liners and one-liners, really no substance and meat. Everybody comes out. They bow their head. They pray a prayer. The pastor told them if they walked out, if they prayed that prayer, they were, they were saved. That was their assurance. Their assurance was based on a prayer they repeated there when they were only there for the motorcycle anyway, the majority of them. Friends, this is happening around this area. This is not something in some big city. It's here in West Virginia. Really in West Virginia. And, and, and so fast forward, a year later, I talked to the worship leader of that church. And I said, I said how many people that you saw come to faith in Christ? Because all, all over social media, 400, 500 people gave their life to Christ. God saved. Not one. Not one. Now, if that many hundred people got saved, couldn't we find one? If they truly came to Christ, couldn't we find one that would be there? Those people walked out justified in their sin with a false assurance. With a false assurance. And I wonder, and this should break your heart as Christians. This should should break our hearts. How many people have died and gone to hell based on a false assurance? Of a card they filled out, or an aisle they walked, or a prayer they prayed, or, or some emotional event they were at. So today, we want to talk about this assurance. We, we, and it comes from this, this flu shot mentality. 
This, this, you know, well, how do you know you're saved? Well, I know I'm saved. Well, uh, Proverbs, Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to man that it leads to death. Oh, I know in my heart of hearts I'm saved. We talked last week about the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, remember? So deceitfully wicked, who could know it? So there's the mind and the heart. So, so how do we know that we know? How do we know that we know? It, it should just be a concern to us. Yes, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, he says test yourself. Now, when many of you woke up this morning... Some more than others, I say that in love. You, you got up and what would you do? You went to the bathroom and you looked in the mirror, right? And if you're like me, you're like, man. And you're just looking at all the damage that was done overnight while you were sleeping. But you looked in that mirror. And that mirror gave you a true view of, of the damages from the night. And you used that mirror to, to, to get yourself to, to go out. The Bible is the same way. In a spiritual sense, the Bible is a mirror that reads us, that shows us our spiritual state. And in, in that sense, this is where we go for assurance. We don't rely on a prayer we prayed. We don't rely on an aisle we walked, a card we filled out, a hand we raised. We rely on God's word confirming or warning us that we're not. We look at God's word. That takes man out of the picture and we look straight, and, and when we go to scriptures, today's scripture is going to be 1 John. 1 John is a wonderful place to look. The entire chapter of 1 John is full of tests. Now, I want to warn you, don't fall into the traps of works righteousness and say, okay, I got up this morning and I, I walked in the light. And I got up this morning and I confessed my sin. I got up this morning and I called so-and-so and I loved the brethren. And on and on and on through 1 John. However... You know yourself. God has given you a conscience. And you know, if, especially if you're a Christian and you've been born again, you know when these things are pressing on you. And so 1 John is a wonderful place to go. And, and, and 1 John, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Just, just, just three verses today. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, this is the message. We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, friends, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And amen. The first part of, of verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. Now, something I have read over many times when you're reading through this, because you can sit down in your quiet time with the Lord, read through the entire book of First John in, what, 30 minutes or so in the morning. Um, is, it's, it says here, it says, said the message. Do you notice that? It says, this is the message we have heard from him. Not a message. The message we have heard from him. In other words, John got this firsthand. Firsthand, he, he got this, this message. If you look uh, previously in, in, in the very beginning, uh, four verses back, look at the language John uses to, to affirm, to give you this, this, this confirmation that he knows. He says, 
From the beginning, he says, which we have heard in verse 1, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life was made manifest. And he says it again. Look here. We have seen it and we testify to it. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. And he says it again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And so John is showing that this is a first-hand eyewitness. Friends, when somebody challenges the authenticity of Scripture and tries to tear down your faith, stand on the Word of God. It stands up better than any other book written in history. We have eyewitness accounts, and that's what we have here. And John says, this is the message. This is similar to what we see Paul say in Galatians 1 and 12 when he talks about God revealing himself to the writer. We have first-hand accounts of these writers in Scripture. So what is the message? Look what it says there. What is the message? It says, this is the message, the message we have heard and we proclaim to you. And what is the message? God is what? God is light. He is light. Have you ever noticed in Scripture, we see God, we don't, we, we, we don't see God as grace, grace, grace. God is love, love, love. God is forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. God is this, 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 or that, that, that. Those are attributes of God to be sure. But we do find one place in Isaiah 6 and 3. And what's it say? God is holy, holy, holy. And that's what John's referring to here. He says he is, he is light. He is light. And you're going to see why. Why he means that in a minute, because he's going to contrast this to the darkness. And we see this. This is a reference again. You remember when John wrote uh, his gospel and these epistles, John's purpose in the gospel, he wrote from the angle of showing the deity of Christ, showing that Christ is God. And so in John 8, 12, there, there's, I think, seven I am statements in the gospel of John. The second one, uh, we say in John 8, 12, and it sounds just like this. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Same language or similar language we see from the author there. Okay, so what, what we see here in the next part of that verse, in verse 5, the second part, it says, And in him there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. When we study scripture, now I'm a reformed guy, and, 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 and the five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. So we say sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority. But it's never a bad thing to go outside sometimes and look at the history and what's going on around. And when John wrote this, there were a lot of false teachers who were into Gnosticism. Basically, they were, they were teaching, and here's your $5 big fancy theological word today. They were, they were teaching that God was esoteric. All that means is that God was, 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 there was hidden secrets. He was in the dark, and only certain ones could know this. We see this in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church teaches this. That's why they will not, unless you're a priest. Did you know in the Catholic Church, unless you're a priest, you're not allowed to read from the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did you know that from up front? As a lay person, you can't read from the Gospels. And this kind of goes back to the root meaning they have in Catholicism. There's these secret things of God, and there's only things that are known, and the whole, and, and the whole, the whole craziness of that. So, so they lay down this meaning. Bear, come here. Come here for a minute. Come here, bud. So they, they lay down this meaning, and, and I, want, I want to show you something. 
How are you? Good. I've taught him that when he sees somebody and is introduced to somebody, and a man especially, that you hold your hand out and you shook your hand with a firm grip and you look that person right in the eye and you return that greeting. That's the way he's been trained. Thank you, buddy. So, go ahead. He's accountable for that. He's accountable for that. See where I'm going with this? They taught God was secret. God was in darkness. Because if God's in secret and God's in darkness, well, then we can do this because we just didn't know. There's no accountability there in that darkness. Now, if I introduce him to somebody and he just acts shy and pulls back like this and hides behind me, instead of shaking their hand, and I haven't taught him anything, and I just right up back of the head, he, he didn't know, right? But he does know. He's held accountable. Likewise, in Scripture, God has made himself known. Look around. Open the window up and, and look at creation. We were talking on the way this morning, on the way to church. Dad, if, if animals and, and, and they're mammals and they got warm blood and there's warm blood in them, then, then how come they're the Arctic fox and the polar bear and the penguin and, and they're in the Arctic and they're in the cold? How? And I explained to him, God has designed all of creation to work to, to his glory. And God has designed it. The polar bear's got insulation here and the, the penguins are made this way and the Arctic fox survived this way and so forth. All of creation has the thumbprint of God on it. He's made himself known. The God of the universe, he's the God of space and of time and of matter. He has made himself known. And friends, we are accountable. And that's what John is getting at when he says there's no darkness. This is the backstory of what's going on around when, he, when he's writing this. And so that's the standard. That's the standard uh, of assurance. God has given us a standard in John 1.5 that John sets the standard. God is light. There's no darkness in him. And he's known. That's the standard. Now, the next two verses on assurance, we're going to see John will give us two contrasts. He'll give us two contrasts. Let's look at the text. In John, 1 John 1, uh, let's take verse 6 first. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, understand, and this is a, this is a, a misunderstanding some Christians have in this verse. John is not talking about two different types of Christians here. These aren't two different classes of Christians, and I'm going to show you here in a second. He's talking about non-believers and believers. He's talking about whether Christians are Christians at all. So he says in verse 6, the we that he uses here is a general reference to anybody that professes Christ, okay? And they claim to have fellowship with him, but they deny that they are sinners. They deny they're sinners. Look, look what it says. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and what's the apostle of love say? We lie and we do not practice the truth. He's identifying a group of non-believers is what he's identifying. And you know what this shows? Now don't check out on me with what I'm about to say, but this is what this shows. By itself, I'm going to qualify this, by itself, your profession of faith means nothing. Now let that sink in for a minute. By itself, because look what John says. These people, they claim they have, they claim they believe in Jesus, they profess Jesus, but what do they do? They walk in darkness. 
They lie. They don't practice the truth. This is why, friends, when we're talking about assurance from a biblical angle and the Bible is our lens and the Bible is our test, we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. We should not want to take our last breath and swing out into eternity on the hope that, well, I believe in Jesus. Again, the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. So if that is your only pillar of I am saved and I know I'm saved because I believe in Jesus, friends, that's a very shaky assurance you have. That's why your profession alone means nothing. Many do. Many do. When referring to false converts, John is showing a stark contrast between the light that he referred to as God and the darkness. Okay, The darkness contradicts the person of God. And understand, when we're talking about the person of God, God doesn't be holy. He is holy. God doesn't be perfect. He is perfect. These are things that are part of God's, well, lack of better terms, DNA, if you would. That's who makes up God. He is holy. He doesn't... Be holy. He is holy. It's part of Him. And when we take this position, this position of lying, of lying because we're walking in darkness, it's against, it's opposite of the person of who God is. It, it, it's kind of like this. It's, it's kind of like this. When you have assurance, when you have truly been born again, you have this assurance that, 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 that you know this and the easiest quick definition of assurance is you can't be comfortable in sin. That, that's an, it's, it's an easy way to think of it that way. If you remember nothing else of this, this message, one key aspect of assurance is you can't be comfortable in your sin. An illustration I, I used with my, my, my oldest daughter at home is it, it's kind of like a rock in your shoe. Think of it this way. There, there's hikers... Okay, any hikers in here like the wilderness or enjoy the wilderness like going out walking? Okay, so a hiker knows their limitations. They kind of think long term of the trip they're going, where they're going, what they're going to see, what they're going to face, what resources they will or will not have. So this person comes along, joins a group, pretends to be a hiker. We'll call him Harry the Hiker. Harry the Hiker. I'm a hiker. I'm a hiker. It's what he claims to be. He's got the backpack. He professes to be a hiker. He gets a rock in his shoe. Okay, that rock doesn't really bother him. You know, he knows he probably should stop and slow down for a minute, but, but he just keeps going. He does, doesn't want to deal with the rock. And so the rock keeps annoying, annoying, and he starts thinking about it a little more. He's like, well, I got to take off my, I got to pull my pants up, and I got to pull my sock down, and I got to untie and unlace, and I got to pull this boot off, and then I got this sock. And he thinks about all these things, but he just continues on, and he pays no attention to it. And eventually the rock starts, starts wearing a sore, and eventually the sore turns into a cut. And eventually, before he knows it, the cut's infected. They're now out miles away. There is no help, no one to call. It gets infected even worse. Now gangrene enters. You see this? Eventually, untreated, this is going to lead to death. His false profession that, well, I'm a hiker, meant nothing because when it came down to it, he was living contrary to how a hiker, a, a hiker, a true hiker would know and that would bother them. A true Christian would know that sin would bother them. They can, can't continue in that sin. The profession of, of your faith doesn't mean anything unless your life reflects fellowship with Christ every day of your life. Now, not legalism, not that I do all this stuff just to get back from God. That, that's works righteousness. And Isaiah 64, 6 plainly tells you your best deeds are 
or filthy rags before a holy and righteous king. But it's that you cannot help but to do the will of the Father because you have been genuinely changed. There's a new affection in your life. That assurance can be seen by, by, by that. So the first contrast we see there in verse 6 is the false converts. It's the false professors of faith. And then John turns his sights and shows us the true Christians. And what's he say in verse 7? This is a different we. This we now is talking about true Christians. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. John refers to false Christians in verse 6. He gets to genuine Christians in verse 7. And look how beautiful it is. If you're here and you're a child of God today, we walk in His light according to His will, pressing forth to the person of God and what the Bible reveals about Him. That your life, your assurance would be based and you would be able to take your life and compare it to here. And you could see here that, that, that you're walking in light. It's, there's no habitual darkness. And that, that you're chasing Christ. Uh, Matthew eleven twelve says, From the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and the violent take it by force. Not a bad violence, but a good violence. That you throw caution to the wind and you chase Christ no matter what. That's your focus. That's the reality in your life. That you're walking in the light. That you're you're, you're day-to-day activity, you reflect that. Now, when you do sin, and we will, Christians will sin, sadly we do, there is a doctrine that, that, uh, uh, called perfectionism, where, where, where folks, uh, they twist scripture around, uh, and don't believe they're sinners anymore. Uh, we see it on the streets a lot of times, where, where Adam and I are out. Um, some of the worst street preachers, they, they fall into that perfectionism. You have it on TV. Joyce Myers has been quoted many times saying she's not a sinner anymore. Um, it, it's a sinless perfectionism. It's heresy. It's from the pit of hell. Okay, Christians will sin. Sadly, we look at Paul. Paul struggled with sin. What did he say in 1 Timothy 1.15? He says, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So, so, yes, Christian, sadly we will sin. But when you do sin, when you do sin, there will be an urgency in your heart. There will be an urgency in your mind to run back to Calvary, to run back to Christ, to run back to the physician that can heal you. You won't be able, again, to stay in that sin. If there is sin that you can stay in comfortably... And there's no conviction. Today, friend, that is a red flag in your life. However, as a Christian, one of the things of assurance that you can see is you walk in the light. And you have fellowship with one another. And here it is. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. You remember these things. That no matter, you know, you may fall a short time, a short sin. Or, or, or it may be a, a season. But you won't be able to stay in that sin. Because you'll realize and you'll, you'll have this conviction that you are in that darkness. And you'll have this desire, this yearning from a new heart and a true conversion to come back into the light, to walk in fellowship with the Lord, knowing you can't walk in fellowship while the darkness. That, you, that, 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 that there's, there's a confession. There's a confession. That when you get that new heart, you'll love the things that God loves and you'll hate the things that God hates. 
The best example of that is the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus on his way to kill more Christians. God struck him down. He turned around and now he's going preaching uh, this, this Christ that he was persecuting people for, killing them uh, before that. What a, what a difference. What a 180. What a complete opposite direction that was. It was a change of, change of heart. I, I ran across an illustration, and, and it hit home for me because in my life, in my conversion, and I'm sure maybe yours, and, and, and what I've been through, and, and I've kind of framed it a little differently, but when I, when I was in the Navy, when I was in the Navy, and um, when, I, when I first started out, my boot camp was in Orlando, and in Orlando, um, I'm sure either you guys have been on a farm, you know a farmer, there, there's farm folk around here, I know where I am, Okay. And there was farms outside of the Orlando area. Now, I don't know what the arrangement was, but the Navy would provide for these farmers. And the way they would provide was we had to do one week of kitchen duty while in boot. And it was the most horrific thing. You were up at 3 in the morning, and you got to bed by like midnight, and you're right back up at 3 for a whole week. And at the end of the week, man, everybody's ready to collapse. It's 95. We were there. I was there July, August, September. It's the hottest month there is in Orlando. Um, but anyway, so we're in the kitchen, and when you clean in the kitchen, they got those metal trays, they push through the galley, it's what us squids call the kitchen, the galley, and so they're in the galley, and they eat, and they come, they give us a tray, and we would scrape these trays off into a big metal garbage can, okay, on the edge of a little dock in the back of the kitchen, you, these, these, these metal garbage cans, and it would just be the nastiest slop you would ever see, it would be all the food, maybe something somebody didn't like, they ate and spit back out, it was just nasty, Foul-smelling slop. We would fill big, I'll never forget these big steel cans and barrels up. And then they would back a truck up and they would send them out and the farms would take them and they would use them to feed the pigs. Now, let's pretend we have that bucket of slop right here in front of us. Smelly, slimy, sorry, we haven't, I know we're about time to eat lunch, but this bucket of slop. And let's say over here, I'm, I'm a barbecue guy. Let's say we just have a nice, big, juicy rack of ribs. Just, I love ribs. I love ribs. And maybe even a steak. Pittsburgh charred steak. If you don't know what Pittsburgh charred is, you'll love it. It's the best way to eat a steak. But anyway, so we got that over here. And let's say we're, we're in the door back here, and let's say my son's feeling a little mischievous, and he sees a pig outside. He gets loose from Farmer Jones's farm, and he turns that pig loose in the sanctuary. That pig's going to come running up through here, and where do you think he's going to go? He's going to go to slop. And he's going to stick his head in. And that pig's going to have his head buried in that slop and just noise and oinking and slop and slurping. And he's just going to be loving life. Now let's say, pretend, I have the power to snap my finger and change that pig into a man right on the spot. What's the first thing that man's going to do? He's going to pull back out of that slop. He's probably going to throw up everywhere all the nasty, vile stuff he just, so now it's even worse. Because he's going to realize what he's doing. And he's going to turn around and see everybody around. He's going to be pretty embarrassed that he was doing that. Now, in love, if you are here today and you are born again, Christian, I just described your conversion. And mine too. I just described our conversion. Before... Christianity, we were drinking down the sin of this world like it was nothing. We loved it. We loved it. We didn't know that there was good stuff over here. We loved it. Now, the Christian will sin. There may be times where that man now may come walking up 
and he may turn his head and take his eye off of Christ and there may be a stumbling block in his way and he may stumble and fall back into that slop. But as soon as it touches his mouth and his nose senses and he realizes what it is, because he is a man, he's a different being. Bible says, what? When you're a Christian, you are a new creature in Christ. He is immediately going to pull back out of that and immediately run back to where he knows to go. That's assurance. That's assurance. When you see that sin and you fall in that sin or you experience that sin, that there's a retraction back from that and a running back to Christ and, 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 and a turn to Christ. He's a good God. He loves to save. He's a forgiving God. He's patient. Thank God he's patient because I know I, trust me, if God's patience could be worn out, I'd have done word out years ago. He is patient. He is loving. He's also just. So if, if you don't have this assurance and there's a red flag in your mind going up that you're going to go, maybe you're going to leave here and go right back into a sin that you know God hates and there's no conviction in your heart, friend, that's a red flag for you today. That is a red flag where you need to soak yourself in Scripture and cry out to God to show you these things. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. This message of assurance should make some of you rejoice because this is a reality in your life. You feel brokenness. You feel the weight of sin. And others, if you are not, this would be a red flag. And maybe this message is even irritating you. And if it is, that's a good thing. That's a good place to be because that's God sending his message to you again saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. If you see these things and you, you see these you, you need to make aware in your life. You need to make aware that, that maybe, maybe you need to spend some time with the Lord and you need to continue to cry out. And, and, and if these things are reality in your life and you do feel that conviction and you do feel that brokenness, friend, that's a good place to be because you know God has given you a new heart and that's an assurance that you can hold on to. That's an assurance and, 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 and when you start doubting that, and you start feeling the wandering and the waning. You just go back to 1 John and you say, is this a reality in my life? Am I lying and practicing darkness or am I really walking in fellowship with God? Is there confession of sin? In the next verse, it goes on in 8 and 9. Do I have a, a love for the brethren? There's all kinds of this language here in 1 John. And this, it's a gift from God. It's as if God's saying, my beloved, you can know you're saved. You can know and have this assurance. Don't place it on what some man has told you you are, or some woman has told you you are, or some friend has told you you are. Place it, he says, on my word. Place your assurance in my word. God's word is perfect. God's word is pure. God's word is inerrant. It cannot fail. And if your assurance is based on the text of Scripture, God's Word, God's breathed Word, you are going to be in a lot better place and a lot more secure when you're laying in the hospital bed or wherever you are and the lights are growing dim and you take that last breath knowing that it's going to be your last and you're about to swing out into eternity. Rather than hesitate, you're going to let that breath go because you're going to know that I wasn't perfect and yes, I sinned against the Lord that I love. But I had this assurance because as I worked through my progressive sanctification, 
I can take my life and look back to Scripture and see that no, I'm not perfect, and yes, I do sin, but these things of God spoken in His perfect Word were reality in my life. This is where you go for assurance. This is where you go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, God, it's been good to be in your house this morning. It's been good to be able to uh, sit and see some of your scripture, Father. Uh, to, to my liking, Lord, it would be another couple hours before we would really truly pull out all the truths in this text. But we thank you for the time you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for God that we can have assurance. We thank you that we can know for certain, Father, that we are your children. Father, as we go on in 1 John and chapter 3, your word clearly shows us two different types of people, children of the devil and children of God. And Father, the, the, the latter is where I, I pray your people are. these people are today. They, they are your adopted sons and daughters. And Father, when they are whether driving down the road today on the way to lunch or maybe laying in the quiet of their bed tonight, that God, their, their thought would go to that and they would consider their lives and consider their salvation and consider their ways and consider their sin and consider their conviction and consider which way they wish to turn. Whether to continue in the bucket of slop, Lord, or turn and show the better thing that you have, which is your son, which is the only place true joy can be found. Lord, I pray for that assurance to be made known more solid in your saints today that are sitting here under this word. Father, if there be anyone who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that this would cut like a knife with the precision, God, that you have given your word with and that that person would turn, God, and not be wounded and beat up, but turn to you, that they would know the Prince of Peace and they would have a peace about them of assurance where your word God, can show and confirm that they have their salvation. The assurance of their salvation is on a rock and not on a bucket of sand. Lord, I pray for this truth to be uh, uh, laid and sown into the hearts of the people here, Lord. Their spirit may be rejuvenated and joyful that these are reality in their life. Though a moment of sadness, God, for the sin that they're in that it would lead to confession and repentance, a continued repentance, Lord, and a continued faith in who you are and what you've done, that your word would be proven true in their lives, and that we may rest our heads tonight as we close our eyes with assurance of our salvation, based not on our feelings, not on our thoughts, not on what someone might have told us, but based on your perfect word. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you and we ask this all in the name of Jesus. And amen.